Permission to release and publish the following material has been duly authorized by the court-appointed guardian of patient W.H. in accordance with the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 and the applicable laws of the state of New Jersey. Previously on No Man's Land. The murders here are similar to the ones in the Berkshires. If he committed those murders because he was possessed in some way, and the no man's land woods have some weird possession occulty shit going on, maybe both those things put together drew him here. Yeah, maybe Willie Claus is Will Halliday. I'm not asking you to like say whether he's possessed or not, but is there any sense that that cold personality that he has is something alien, something outside of him? Mm. Look, I, I've been doing this work for like 20 years, and um, I've never really been much of a believer in things that are beyond what you can see and uh, measure. But what I will say to you is that I don't know that I've ever felt the kind of cold energy from any person I've ever worked with. And I've worked with some severe people with sociopathy and um, psychopathy, where it's like, I can feel their energy being just like, they, they, there's no empathy, there's no sympathy, there's nothing there. Um, there's something different about this piece that's weird. I will be willing to say that I don't know what the hell that is. Live from Highland Park, New Jersey, this is No Man's Land, an original podcast from WVHP Media. Episode 9, William Halliday. Hi, I'm Will Schwartz. I'm Mark Ramrico. And I'm local documentarian John Hume. And you are listening to No Man's Land, an in-depth investigation into a mysterious section of woods in central New Jersey of the same name. First things first, I want to address some of the feedback we've actually been getting from listeners to the podcast. Um, I got a couple phone calls and emails of listeners expressing a very specific concern. So, Will, can you read one of the most recent emails to come through and then let's react to that? Yeah, sure. All right. Hi, John. First off, I just wanted to say that I love the podcast. I'm actually emailing you while listening to episode eight and want to ask if the quote unquote name is ever said on the show. I'm very sensitive to things like this, and I'm fearing that the name will be revealed while I'm listening. I'm so sorry about Will and hope he's getting better. Thanks again and keep up the great work. So I, I'm, I'm assuming you're continuing to feel better, correct? I, I sure am. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll table our concerns about Mark until later. Let's be very clear about this. This point in the production, nobody has spoken or given to us what we believe to be the correct pronunciation of this yeah. name that is supposedly ascribed to the evil spirit, which apparently, when uttered aloud, opens you up to possession. No one, no one has spoken that to us. We've seen it. Right. So we've seen it. I definitely felt uncomfortable about showing the video that we shot of Pete's book. Is that the book that you had out of No Man's Land? Yeah. Do you still have the pages that were you were writing on there? Yeah. It didn't look like a, a language, you know? It looked like gibberish. Did anybody Dude. try to pronounce it? 
I didn't. I like other people were trying. On one end, right, we're 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 in the shoes of journalists here, right? Yeah. But like, how do you feel about should we take all pictures of Pete's book off the website, and should we what what should we do if somebody, let's say, if we interview Willie Claus and Willie Claus starts successfully pronouncing the name because he is possessed by this evil spirit, what do we do? It's a tough line to toe between it. I guess yeah, you're saying journalistic integrity and making sure that we're being responsible and safe. My instinct here, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, uh, and you too, Mark, if you want to chime in, um, if we were to know exactly how to pronounce it, that we would beep it. Exactly. And, yeah, that's and, what that's that's what I would think as well. And we're not going to sit around trying to get it right, because there's only one thing that can happen <laughs> if you get it right, and it ain't good. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, like... Anybody who attempts to pronounce the name right or wrong, we're going to beep that out for the safety of the audience. I agree. And for our own safety, frankly. Mm -hmm. I think that's um, definitely fair. And we know that there are people concerned after them reaching out. So it's not just us anymore. When we last left off, we were trying to track down a mysterious figure known as Willie Claus a homeless vagrant who may or may not be responsible for several murders that took place both here in New Jersey and in the Berkshire Mountains of upstate New York. Our first breakthrough came when we tracked down former Highland Park police officer Zach Hanner, currently living in North Carolina. He was one of the officers responsible for arresting Willie in no man's land for hunting with a crossbow. The last he'd heard of him, he was sent to a mental health facility in Trenton, New Jersey. Zach had hoped he could help us find if Willie was still alive, and if so, where he is now. Unfortunately, his connections fell through. So that's why I reached out to a woman named Phyllis Pollock. Um, Phyllis is a member of my synagogue, actually, uh, who works extensively with the homeless population in both Highland Park and New Brunswick. If anyone could uh, help us find out where Willie is or who's taking care of him now, I figured Phyllis was the person that we needed to talk to. your time uh, engaged in this population around the area, did you ever come across one of the guys that, that went by the name of Willie Claus? Yes, he's known as Willie Claus because of his hands and his fingers missing. Uh, what, did the, what did the other men think of him? They, they are afraid of him. I don't know if it's because of his hands or because he doesn't really speak that well. And his voice also, there's an eerie noise to it. Screeching. Did that not creep you out a little bit? No, I'm kind of used to it. I mean, you know, I hear all kinds of things, you know. We had one instance where another of our our guys passed away. So I arranged for a memorial service for him so he'd have something. And we were down underneath the bridge. You could see shadows which the guys thought, and we thought, maybe that's Willie Claw, but it doesn't do any good to call him. Well, you just heard, like this, that noise. And he wouldn't come out. Um, We did leave some pizza there. You didn't see Willie there, but you heard him. We heard him and we saw shadows. And when you see a shadow of somebody like Willie Claw or somebody else, they want you to leave them alone. Like I said, we spoke to the cop who arrested. I spoke to some people who work down in Trenton and Persephone. The problem is, I don't have a real name to give them. And there's confidentiality issues. 
They, they're okay. SIPA. Right. They will, yes, they will not give us any any information whatsoever. So is there anybody you could call that could get us like some backroom information? One, just to confirm he's still alive, and two, you know, we've happened upon a lot of information that we think might help ascertain his real identity. So if you have anybody in your circles that you could, without betraying any confidences, just find out that we could then even send our, an email the, the, the material that we have, that it might help. You know, John. Yes. That would be the most, well, you're gonna make me cry. Can you imagine if I got in touch with his caseworker and if we could really connect with Willie, hold him in our arms, huh? Believe me, we're going to get in touch with Willie and we're going to try to rescue the man underneath. Hi, Sean. This is Phyllis. Um, I have good news. I made some calls about Willie and um, I found his caseworker. So um, if you can get in touch with me, we can follow up and um, continue and try to connect with Willie in a, in a great way to help him out. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye, John. Apparently, he's at a place called the Ann Klein Forensic Center in West Trenton. Caseworkers gave me the name of the doctor that he's under the, the care of. And he's been there for a couple years. I don't think that he's there still because of hunting in the woods. You know what I mean? And Phyllis kind of implied that a lot of times with guys like this, they just medicate them to such a degree that they're there and they stay there. Or guys decide it's fucking way better here, three meals a day, warm bed, than like sleeping in the woods or down by the river. So the question is, how are we going to get to him? My mom is a doctor, and if we see someone who's her patient out in public, she never can say like, oh, that's my patient, or, you know, there's all these non-disclosure HIPAA laws where they cannot reveal that information about their patients. So I think the only way that we may be able to even think about connecting with Willie would be if we had some concrete evidence that could actually help his case, prove his identity, potentially help his care. Exactly. So our new producer and field reporter, Sophia Solomondo, has mostly been focused on going through the research provided to us by Will Rogers and Kristen Anderson, hosts of the Guide to the Unknown podcast, who strongly believe they've uncovered Willie Claus's real identity. Will and Kristen believe that Willie Claus is actually a man named William Halliday, who inexplicably killed his wife and two children in Bridgeport, Connecticut, back in 1979. Now, there's three reasons why they believe this. One, William Halliday murdered his family immediately following a trip to the Black Magic Colony built by Barbara Farmer. He went there with his family, and the urban legend around that murder is that maybe he caught something there. Like, maybe he was possessed by going there, and that caused this random murder of his family. Because he was just, like, a nice guy, nice family. There was no, nothing to indicate that that would be going on. Two, Will Halliday is suspected in several other murder cases that took place in the Berkshire Mountains in the early 80s. There were a few cases up in the Berkshires 
of joggers, hikers, campers, all found killed. And uh, there's still nobody who's really answered for it. Uh, the police tried to track down who did it. The best that we could find in our like research on it was that they eventually blamed it on this person living in the woods, possibly William Halliday. But even when they tried to arrest him, he got away from yeah, them away. too. Three, those murders bear a striking similarity to the murders that took place in no man's land in the 80s and 90s. If he committed those murders because he was possessed in some way, and the no man's land woods have some weird possession occulty shit going on, maybe both those things put together drew him here. Yeah, maybe Willie Claus is Will Halliday. Will and Kristen had done a lot of great research, but it's shocking how little information there is about this case on the internet. So I walked over to Alexander Library at Rutgers, where they have this awesome basement archive of microfiche. If you don't know what microfiche is, because I had no idea, in order to preserve newspapers pre-internet, they would photograph every page. And if you wanted to go through these archives, you have to take it out and feed the raw film through this clunky old machine to scroll through every page. I focused on local newspapers from Bridgeport, Connecticut, Great Barrington in the Berkshires where Halliday supposedly grew up, and here in central Jersey during the time periods when the unsolved murders took place. And a lot of dust later, I found articles that seemed to support the connection between Willie Claus and William Halliday. Bridgeport Examiner, April 7, 1979. William Halliday, 29, was arrested for the murder of his wife, Jane, six-year-old daughter, Ava, and four-year-old son, Billy. Witnesses describe a horrific scene as Halliday, a highly respected professor at the University of Bridgeport, as well as a Little League coach and pillar of the community, emerged from his house early Sunday evening holding an aluminum baseball bat and covered from head to toe in blood. Halliday repeatedly claimed, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, as he was placed in the back of the police car. Bridgeport Examiner, September 12, 1979. Halliday found not guilty by reason of insanity. According to observers, Mr. Halliday never spoke during the entire trial, nor has he spoken a single word since he's been arrested. Chief State Attorney Austin McGuigan signed off on the insanity plea, as Halliday had obviously lost his mind. Hartford Current, September 23, 1979. Halliday remanded to Harlem Valley Psychiatric, sent to the criminally insane wing of the mental hospital, physically unrecognizable, hair matted, teeth missing, and long beard, bearing little to no resemblance to photos of Will Halliday. Albany Herald, November 12, 1980. When asked about the rumors of escapees from Harlem Valley's infamous criminally insane wing, Dr. Stephen Katz, New York's commissioner of the Office of Mental Health, mockingly suggested he'd heard the same story around a campfire as a child. Back then, he said, we called him Three-Fingered Willie. The Catholic Observer, December 3, 1980. Missing girl's body identified. 
The strangled corpse found in a wooded area near Stockbridge, Massachusetts last week had been identified as Janice Walcott, 23, of Pittsfield, reported missing by her family after going for a jog nearly three weeks ago. Berkshire Eagle, January 19, 1981. The desiccated body of an unidentified young woman was discovered a few feet off the Appalachian Trail in the woods near Great Barrington, Massachusetts. A backpack found near the corpse suggested she was indeed hiking the trail, which would make her the third such victim in the last four months. Berkshire Eagle June 5, 1981. An APV was issued for a white male, 30s, unkempt and dirty, considered dangerous. Bones and carcasses found in the ruins of the Barbara Farmer colony suggested he'd been living and hunting there for several months. Central Jersey News Tribune. April 14, 1982. Valerie Parker, 21, of Kearney, New Jersey, found dead near the Forest Glen Apartments in Highland Park, where she was a resident. Neighbors say she was a competitive distance runner who regularly jogged the many trails in the woods behind the complex. There are no suspects at this time. News Tribune, April 14, 1984. Young Rutgers student, African-American, 21, found dead in the reeds just off Cedar Lane. Strangled. No suspects at the time. The Harlem Valley Psychiatric Center in Wingdale, New York, was permanently shut down in 1994. Though there is no proof William Halliday escaped from the facility at any time before then, there is also no evidence that he either died under their care or was transferred to another facility. We did, however, find several articles suggesting that one of the reasons Harlem Valley was shut down was due to multiple unreported escapes in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. This attracted the attention of the Highland Park, New Jersey Police Department as well as retired officer Michael Jarmus explained to me during our previous phone call. One of our sources suggests that that Will Halliday may be Willie Quaz. What do you think about that? What you're referring to is kind of a pet theory that Chief Detective had back in the day, that uh, the two uh, Rutgers University students uh, murdered near Forest Glen. Those cases bore resemblance to the Will Halliday murders that you're referencing which took place near the Black Magic Colony, was built by the victim of the 1963 Marywood Castle murder of Barbara Farmer. And uh, the chief at the time thought that was just too big a coincidence to just be ignored. The two RU students that were murdered, it looked like the crimes that happened in the Berkshires. Yeah, it just seemed like the similarities were too striking just to be coincidence. That was a theory. Hey, Mr. Hume, this is Carol from Ann Klein calling again. I just wanted you to know that I passed along all the information you gave me to the doctor in charge of William's treatment. And um, judging from his response, I think you're going to be hearing from him shortly. I'm not sure exactly what he wants to discuss, but I do know we're both really encouraged by what you found. So thanks for sharing the research. I'm going to cross my fingers that it leads to some kind of breakthrough. Take good care. I think we need to collectively decide how we want to handle the situation. Like, how do we want to, how do we want to approach this doctor and like what we should say? What do you, what do you guys think? 
I definitely think we don't want to come off as exploitative. I don't know if you've seen the the new Halloween movie from 2018, but the premise of it is that um, Michael Myers was in a mental facility uh, from the original, and um, he was able to escape because a bunch of idiot podcasters. Testing one, two, three. We're on. We're here to investigate patient that killed three innocent teenagers on a Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night and has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael. My takeaway from that movie was that um, there's a clear difference between amateurs with the microphone and people who, who have journalistic integrity and i think that um we certainly want to be airing on the side of not the idiot amateurs who are just doing stupidness for clicks we might be perceived as that if we go Agreed. about it the wrong way Agreed. first of all there already was a sequel to the original halloween and uh, oh yeah and that one was much and they better go back, and then they go back and try to make another one as if none, none of that existed I'm not, <laughs> I'm not into that shit at all I, I refuse to acknowledge its existence and this is where i'm finding some comfort is like if we're not going to get it, it's because we shouldn't get it. You know what I mean? It's the wrong thing to do. He won't be in the kind of shape that we want to interview anyway. The other thing that Phyllis said that I forgot to tell you was some of these people, they don't want to remember who they are. And you may be doing them damage by forcing them to remember who they are. So that's another danger for us. But I generally believe that, that the truth is, is a good thing. Best case scenario is what, like... Best case scenario is that Willie is cogent enough to have a conversation with us and that we get permission to do so. We'll just call you Dr. Michaels, but... Yeah, Dr. Michaels. But I'll refer to you as, you know, Charles Michaels. Yeah, Charlie Michaels. Charlie Michaels. So how did you come to sort of take on the man that we know as Willie Claus uh, as a patient? So when I came to Trenton Psychiatric, I was brought over there because I was pretty much working with the folks that they couldn't access. And given some of the experiences I've had working with um, some of the psychedelics, uh, they felt like it would be useful to work with William because no one else was able to access him. He had pretty much been catatonic and I had done some work with some other folks who had some severe dissociative identity disorder. And through some of these um, interventions, we were able to access a lot more of their fuller personality. And so um, William was someone who was just absolutely unavailable. Uh, No one could reach him. And so um, they felt like doing some of these trials would be uh, worthwhile. And so I started working with him about a year ago. Can you describe sort of what what his treatment has been and like what you've been able to discover about him so far? And I really felt like if we started the trial slowly and we build a a long rapport because he he needs to feel safe. Anyone who has trauma, the number one thing is they need to feel safe. The safer people feel, the more able they are to let down their guard and allow more of the unconscious to become present. And then working with some of the medications and starting to shift him off some of these more intense antipsychotics he was taking. I mean, he was on such a cocktail that I don't know how anyone would really be able to come out of that anyway. So we slowly started adjusting his meds. And as we started to do that, we started to introduce microdosing of psilocybin. 
And over time, we started to access a little bit more of, of who he is. He started to talk. He started to be more responsive. Um, he was able to uh, communicate. And that was really the beginning of, of what I think was the meaningful work. And in those, those guided treatments, you know, are you asking him questions about, you know, his life or who he is? Or what are, the, what are those conversations like? A lot of it is allowing him to just share what he's experiencing in the moment. And then from that, guiding and letting the experience emerge from there. So for instance, he has said at times that I can kind of feel a coldness in my body. And I said, okay, great. Well, tell me a little bit more about the coldness. What's that like? And then the next thing we know, we're talking about like him being in a forest, that he has an image of himself in a forest. And we're able to then explore what feelings he has, what are there, what is he afraid of? What is he noticing? Uh, and that allows him to access, I think, more of the human he has been his whole life that he's been disconnected from. Now, we've heard him described as having multiple personalities. Is this your experience of him? My working diagnosis with him right now is dissociative identity disorder. And um, the reason why I'm holding that is because I do think there is a core person there who, who I see as William. He's a sweet, actually a sweet and gentle man. He's very sad. And I, when I'm relating to William, uh, I can feel that. There's also this like sort of pretty catatonic side of William where he's pretty non-responsive. It's like William is not there anymore. And I'm trying to make contact, but there's just, it's, it's like a vacant energy. And I think that's been the persona he has had for many years. And then there's this other part, which is very difficult to explain. There's like this darker, this darker energy, like a look of kind of, it's a stone cold energy that I, I will admit can like send like a shiver through my body. Like I even just thinking about it right now, it's a very cold energy. And I feel like I'm tapping into pieces of that, that emerge in moments that can be a bit overwhelming. And that's what comes out when he, when he has done damage to his finger. And what do you do to protect him if he's exhibiting that behavior? Yeah, so it has been a really challenging component because one of the ways that people can regulate when they get when they get overwhelmed is self-harm. And he seems to be deeply drawn to that as a regulatory function. Sometimes we've had to do restraining uh, because once he starts to do that and he gets really into cracking his fingers, he, he literally has broken his fingers a number of times. I'm not asking you to like say whether he's possessed or not, but is there any sense that that cold personality that he has is something alien, something outside of him? Mm. Look, I, I've been doing this work for like 20 years and um, I've never really been much of a believer in things that are beyond what you can see and uh, measure. There's something different about this piece that's weird. If we do do this interview, are you okay with me asking questions about William Halliday that might provoke something from him if they were one and the same? My sense is it probably will take something to jar him out. And if he can access a piece of information that no one has known about him, it could like open something up in him that 
could give us more access to these other parts of himself. So I do think it could be useful, but it's going to be important that we pay attention to the ways in which it stimulates him. I don't want to do any harm. Um, I really want to help this guy. I care a lot about him. I've, I've come to really appreciate who he is. There's like a lot of darkness this guy needs to face, and I want to support him doing that, and that might help. Hey, Sophia. Hey. So I just got off the phone with Dr. Michaels, mm -hmm. and the good news is he's definitely going to let us sit in on a on a session with Willie. No. We want who he really wants us to call William. Yes, and here's why: he's been working with William for nine months, and there were they made tremendous progress, but over the last three months they hit a wall, and he thinks that not just all the information we we sent him about the possibility that Willie is Will William Halliday, but that having us be there might help nudge him over the edge and really extract the person that, that his core identity out, so to speak. Oh my God. The weird thing is, and this is why I'm calling you, he listened to the last episode of the podcast and he wants to invite you to sit on the session as well. For whatever reason, William seems to be triggered in a very specific way when in the presence of young women. It's mostly happened when he's been around nurses or med students that were initially brought in to help in William's treatment. But that third identity that he mentions, that kind of like strange, cold third persona that the doctor doesn't quite know what the source of is, seems to come out when in the presence of young women. So I know that's a sort of a weird thing to drop on you, but how would you feel about taking part in the Zoom session? I feel like this is a lot. It's definitely a lot to ask. I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> the only way I would ever have you be a part of it is if you were hundred percent on board. Like if you tell me no, then, then I'll just tell him no, because I know you know, what those neighbors shared with you was some pretty dicey stuff. I mean, requesting me is like, it, no more removed. It's no longer removed. <laughs> well, you're, you know, you're removed in one way and like, right, we're in, we're on Zoom, right? right. So like, that's, that's one level of removal. It's not like yeah. we're all going to be in the same room together. And the only reason he wants to bring us in on this session is because he thinks it might help William, right? Yeah. And he would not, he would have not invited you to be a part of it if he didn't think that was true as well. But again, you got to be 100% on board or, or I perfectly fine saying, you know what, I don't think this is a good idea. No, I, I have to do it. it w this is the kind of opportunity that we never thought we would have. And like, we just, we can't not take advantage of it. And that's not me being manipulative, is it? No, we we have to figure this out. We've been we've been doing all this research and all these interviews and we've been looking through archives. I mean, we absolutely have to. Yeah. It's better that we do it sooner rather than later because the longer we stress about it, the harder it's going to be to do. Okay. I, I can tell you without without shame that I'm absolutely terrified to be in a Zoom with Willie Claus. That would be. How are you doing, Will? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good, man. I don't want to take a lot of your time. Here's the deal. 
the number one thing is we're just trying to establish is there anything we find out in a conversation tonight that would confirm he's Will Halliday? Yeah. But but the doctor strikes me as extremely competent. So I don't think we're likely to see anything he hasn't seen it before. But there'll be two orderlies there. So the worst that can happen is he starts freaking out and they go grab him and sedate him. They keep his hands in gloves, kind of like, do you remember in episode five, Rod Dudley talked about how they kept uh, Caleb, his uncle Caleb? Yeah. Even if they put foam on his hands or gloves, he would bite through it and he would try to get it off so that he could continue to like, you know, pound his hands and until they were mangled and broken. We don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> that, that that's that, that's probably something you can't unsee. I want to see what the hands look like. Yeah, we could see pictures. I don't need to see him breaking his fingers live. Let me tell you something. If the fucking video starts sketching out and acting weird, you're gonna uh... you're gonna hear the scream from where you're. <laughs> Right? And I'm then pulling, we know. I'm pulling the plug on the project oh. in that moment. All right. I'm excited. I'm excited too, man. I'm excited too. And then we'll see what happens, man. I'll call you as soon as it's over. We will be anxious. I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking freaking out. All right, I gotta go. Good luck. Good luck. All right, All right. take it easy. on the next episode of No Man's Land. He should be coming in any any minute now. I, I believe the orderlies are gonna be bringing him in. Okay. Thank you for doing this, by the way. We appreciate it. And we're gonna be- well, we appreciate you We appreciate you as well. Um, hopefully this is gonna be fruitful for him. Hello, William. No Man's Land is produced by Mark Remrecka, Will Schwartz, Sophia Salamando, and John Hulme. Sound design by Carmen Borgia. Original score by Kevin Wiggins. Our theme song is Inventions by Maserati. Special thanks to Phyllis Pollock, Michael Jarmus, Steve Chud Chudnik, Dan Robertson, and Dr. Charles Michaels. Our featured song is Mille Tontres by Tift Merritt. See Say